candy, and they get a water ball slingshot, and they get a um, foam airplane. One of each. We need a PowerPoint operator, please. Thank you. <laughs> okay, here we go. So it was a great week, um, but it's, it's fallen behind now. 
The last kind of cool thing that's going on is there's a lot of folks in the Bible verses said this morning, as they said, all six Bible verses, and we have prizes for them to take home today, which is really kind of cool. If you have not done that yet, kids, you can do it with your Sunday school teacher when you go to class, um, assuming they have time. If you had all week, you had all week to work on those verses. If you haven't done it yet, maybe if you just need to polish it a little bit, then, then there, that's fine. But if it's if you haven't touched it at all, you probably have to get it done today and don't stress over it. And just next time you get that opportunity, do it. Okay? This week is the 4th of July weekend slash first of the week because it's the 4th of July Tuesday for us. That means a couple of things. For one, we will not meet on Tuesday like we normally do. So there won't be any teen kids, there won't be any Bible study. But it's our transition. So on the, le- the 11th, so a week from this coming Tuesday, we will start Tuesday night service in here as a group and worship God. And then the kids will go to their appropriate classes and games like they normally do. And the teens and adults will stay in here for uh, a lesson time. And if you are a teen or an adult and you feel like God is leading you to teach on something, that's an opportunity for you to do that. And we'll have a schedule. We'll be months in advance on the schedule, at least a couple months. So don't wait for the last second. And if you do, maybe somebody will step out of the way so you can teach. But otherwise, if you get on that schedule, that would be ideal. And then, obviously, we're praying for our nation. Um, it really is, the 4th of July really is a celebration of our Declaration of Independence. Our Independence Day. It's the day that we said that we felt that we could govern ourselves under God. I don't know if you know this or not, but all of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, except for one, were deacons or pastors. It's not your turn right now. Okay, thank you. And so, if you, uh, if you think of that, that means the church led out in saying to the King of England that our nation could govern itself. And so we very much have, we're very instrumental in the way this country is led, the church is. Uh, when I was at the annual meeting, I'll just make this last comment and then we'll pray. When I was at the annual meeting, um, one of the things that they mentioned was over the last 20 years, every major swing in government, including the recent overthrowing of Roe versus Wade and like that, was preceded by Southern Baptists making a resolution to the effect of what they what was what happened. So two years ago, three years ago now, three years ago, Southern Baptists asked the federal government to overthrow overturn Roe v. Wade and make abortion um, illegal federally, and then let the states decide how they want to handle it. And then you saw it happen last year. So that has happened throughout our history. You are part of a kingdom of God. Ideally, that would lead our entire country, but that's not how it actually happens. Uh, we do get to lead a lot, we get to influence a lot, uh, but a lot of people are not led by Jesus, and I wish they were. Um, so, we're going to pray for our nation as I open today. Pray for freedom, true freedom, uh, as we talk about what that means a little bit later. And, uh, and I hope that you'll stand up. Last night at the fireworks, right, we didn't get the paper first, it was kind of late for, for a Sunday morning. But we went out to the festival of and I ran into some people who were also wearing Christian t-shirts, and I got to talk to them, and they were celebrating like we are. So we get to be part of creation, to serve God, and to preach God, and I'm grateful for that. I hope you are too. Okay? Pray this morning for Ron Mack, who's pretty sick. He's got head congestion, sinus stuff going on, which could simply be because of all that smoke that's been in the air. You can see that it's finally clearing, thanks to the rain, but it may be back, because it's across the whole country, the Midwest, as soon as the 
that kind of goes away. Josh is also sick, and this could be from kind of started by the internet. Josh, Ron, Canada. Yeah, all the smokes from the fires in Canada. That's right. So. Okay, so let's pray together. Bless you. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day to come together and worship. We are grateful for this day realizing that you have blessed us to be part of a nation founded on the principles of freedom. We recognize that men have certain inalienable rights. They have the ability, at, at least, to hear from you and to choose whether to follow you or to go another way. In our country, we want to preserve that for every individual. We pray for our government and the president to the local councilmen at every level. We pray for our soldiers of every branch of the military and everywhere they might be right now. We pray thanking you, God, that you have preserved it to this day. We've already made it well over 200 years, and the truth is, so many methods of government in so many countries have originated in the history of mankind that, that didn't last 200 years, and many originated that lasted a lot longer. So we hope ours will last a lot longer, and we'll be able to preserve for United States of America citizens, and maybe the world over, those inalienable rights that you have bestowed to men. Father, we pray for our sick. We pray for Josh. We pray for Ron. We pray for those who are hurt. We pray for June. We pray for Chris. Lord, there's a lot of trials and tribulations in this life. We know your word says count it pure joy, but we also know that in the midst of trials and tribulations, sometimes that seems very difficult. But I pray for my wife. She continues to struggle with the problem with her neck and her back and her head. There needs to be a solution, Lord. And for these names that have been called, maybe a miraculous solution. We know you have the power. We pray you will rebuke the evil spirits of infirmity and set our people truly free to follow you and the strength that you have bestowed them with. And I praise you, Father, that they are overcoming. And where they are failing to overcome, I pray that you will lift them up so that they can. Father, I pray for this worship service that it would honor you. And we would, as Caleb reminded us, realize we are in such a good place be able to be here, to be able to be beyond any struggle that might stop us from coming. While people in Canada are fighting fires over millions of acres of forest started by the driest May in history. And then we just get the residual effects of that, reminding us that we are not alone, not fully apart. As long as we're followers of Jesus in this world, it matters what happens to other people. And so we pray for them, Lord. Pray for others, or I pray for the gentleman uh, and his son. Uh, he works at Aaron's work, and Aaron's been witnessing to him. And now his son is going to go to Camp Cam with us, and going to volunteer at the life station because he got in trouble with the law and needs to do that. Uh, Lord, and he wants, he's eager, wants to learn about you. And I pray that that relationship will blossom into something awesome and powerful. Not not our kind of power, but your kind of power. I pray you'll take over this time, calm distractions. Overcome temptation and help us focus on you. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're lacking our entire rhythm section up here today. So I need you to stand up and dance a little, clap a little.
Sing along. Here we go. Stand up. Come on. Dominic, go ahead. No. 
No.
I'm gonna try to make you some. Hopefully. At least it's mine.
the Savior of the world was fallen, his body on the cross, his blood poured out for us, the weight of every curse upon him. Final breath he gave as heaven looked away. The Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged. The power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake. The storm happened a number of times while I have been walking out this Christian walk since I got saved that someone has said to me that God is a God of second chances. And I'm, I'm in agreement with that statement, generally speaking. I think we are born with our first chance. Screw that up. Without fail, everyone screws it up. That's what it means when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then God is willing to give a second chance. He is willing to rebirth a person spiritually so that they can begin anew with him, start over altogether, and get a second chance. However, this is where my struggle begins. Because it occurs to me that while God is a God of second chances, what most people mean when they say God is a God of second chances is that God is a God of infinite chances. Unending, forever forgiving, always willing that you should be able to go back again. I submit to you that I struggle with that because Satan and evil spirits and demons get no more second chances. They rebelled overtly against God. And I guess you could say by some stretch of the analogy that if a demon decided to turn his life over to Jesus and be on the right side again, perhaps God would forgive. And then you would say, perhaps a demon would never do that. He would never change sides. But they're not stupid. They fear God and tremble. And the Bible says that they recognize the name of God and they fear. They tremble at the name of God. And yet, they do not switch sides, either by their own will 
or I submit to you that it's entirely possible that they are not allowed. They have gone beyond. They are, the Bible says that he is able to keep unto that day uh, their just punishment, their eternal punishment. So then I struggle with the human being who would say, use the phrase, God is a God of second chances in all kinds of environments and under all kinds of things. So I, I repented, I turned away from this thing that I was doing, and now, bless you, I've gone back into it again, and I repent again and I turn away, and I repent again and I turn away, and I repent again and I turn away, and as long as I'm still repenting every so often, before I die, God will forgive and everything will be fine. I'm not sure of that doctrine. Some would argue it's true from Scripture. Others would say, no, that is not Christianity. To repent and turn to the Lord and allow God to work in you is to actually see fruits of God's labor in you. Jesus even said, you shall know them by the fruits of their tree or how, what they produce. So is God a God of second chances? Absolutely. Is he a God of seven chances? Perhaps. Is he a God of 77 times seven chances? Perhaps. Certainly, when Jesus was asked, how often shall I forgive my brother, if he comes and apologizes, at, they were told 77 times, seven times. So always to be forgiving. I want you to bear that in mind today, then, as we look at the text, because there is a place in this text where there is no way back. It's not the only place. Elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it talks about how there were those Israelites who came out of the Promised Land, and God had basically chosen them by grace, and they died in the desert and were never allowed to see the promised land after failing to go in courageously when he told them to, and then going in when he told them not to. They did all of that, and they were never allowed to see the promised land dying in the desert, and it says that they were as an example to us that eventually there is a place where you can get to where there is no more repentance, there is no more forgiveness, there is no going back. This one that we're going to see today is a very specific case with a very specific purpose, but at the same time, I submit to you, it will teach us something about the, the greater case, the case that might apply to all of us. So grab your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Amen. Very little hoots and hollers today, a little, little something from Tommy back there. I don't know what that was exactly. Oh, that, was, that was Arden, okay. Yeah, a little sound bite. Okay, that's good enough. All right, good stuff. So even the sound guy gets in on the hooting and hollering back there. I like that. All right, it was fun. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're just going to have the first five verses, and I will quote a couple of other texts and read two other texts by the time I'm done. So this will go by fairly quickly, uh, so be careful you don't miss it. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 5 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. That's as far as verse 1 goes. So there are a couple of troubling phrases in here for purposes of interpretation. I was troubled by them when I read them in English. And then when I went and looked at the various commentaries, they're all pointing out that it's, there are struggles in translating them from Hebrew to English. And that's why they're in different translations. If you didn't read in the New American Standard, you may have seen something different there. Uh, so I'll point them out to you briefly. The first one where it says he's found no favor in his eyes. So in other words, uh, he doesn't love her anymore. He doesn't want her anymore. She, she's not uh, the apple of his eye, if you will, because he has found some indecency in her or uh, in the phrase, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out from the house. 
Both of those two are tough to translate. The indecency, the word there is he's uh, seen a nakedness in her. So now that they've been together, it's not, and it doesn't mean, although someone might try to interpret that way, it doesn't mean that he saw her naked and he doesn't like what he sees. It's nothing like that. right? It means that now that they've been together intimately and in all ways and spent some time together, he's decided that she's not the person she presented herself to be. Right? There's something about her that is indecent, an immoral behavior, if you will, that is in keeping with her normal character, and he's decided that that indecency in her disqualifies her as his wife. That's what it's talking about. In Jesus' day, this particular case is so expanded, that indecency in her, the thing that he doesn't like that leads her to not have favor for her, is so expanded to say, by many, that if there's anything at all he doesn't like about her, he can divorce her. That's the way they were doing it in Jesus' day by a lot of people. But it was left to only the man. If there was anything about the man, anything that the man did not like about his wife, he could write her a paper of divorce and send her away out of his house. And so it was occurring quite frequently, because if it's not an offense to God, any Jewish male might do it any time he feels like he should, any time he feels like he wants to. He might look at his wife and go, well, she put on 15 pounds, and here's this pretty chick over here that ain't put on the 15 pounds. I'm going to get rid of her, and I'm going to take this one instead. Right? And there were those in the mainline Jewish faith who were interpreting the text to say if there was anything at all that he didn't like about his wife, he could just write her papers of divorce and get rid of her. And so there were far too many divorced women running around in Jesus' day, uh, which, of course, is why Jesus addresses the issue of divorce multiple times in his public ministry. That being said... That's not what it meant. What it means in the text and what it means in the Hebrew and what we've just studied is to say that having come to know her, he now realizes that there is a deep indecency and immorality, something about her, a flaw in her character that disqualifies her from being his wife. Covered up during their courtship, covered up during his previous knowing of her. We're not just talking about the fact that maybe she was not a virgin when they married. We covered that a little while back in Deuteronomy. We're talking about an indecency in her character, an immorality that continues, it's persistent, and it's not going to easily go away. It's funny how that works, isn't it? When you run into somebody and they have a flaw, and it's clear that they're not going to get over their flaw anytime soon, you're left with only really kind of like a couple of possibilities. One is you still stay in there with that person, you hang in there tight with that person, and you suffer the negative effects of the flaw in their character over and over and over again. That's one of the possibilities. Another is you hang in there with that person and fight the good fight, and maybe allow, between the two of you, you're able to overcome that flaw in character, and someday you defeat it, and those two possibilities can, can be combined. So we stay in there, we fight, we suffer the effects for as long as we have to, and eventually become, that person becomes a person of character in that area. And the third one is to put some distance between you and them. So what Moses told the men uh, here in Deuteronomy 24 is that if it, if it so happened that... The woman was found to have an indecency in her moral character, and the man chose then to write her a certificate of divorce. Notice, this is not saying, if there is a flaw in her character, he can write her a certificate of divorce, or he should write her a certificate of divorce, or the proper course of action is, or if he does, he will not be held accountable by God, or anything like that. It's not, it doesn't say anything like that. What it says is that if it arises, that after you come to know her, she has a flaw in her character that you were not previously aware of that disqualifies her from being your, her your wife, and then you choose to write her a, a certificate of divorce, then now what we're going to read next, right? 
So the dominoes fall like this, then this is what God says you must do. God does not say that you will find a flaw in her character. God does not say that you will divorce her if you find a flaw in her character. So this is by no means authorizing that. It was used that way. It has been used that way on a number of occasions. But God is not authorizing that course of action, but rather saying, I can see that this will happen. The same as he once said, you don't need another king, but I can see that one day you're going you're gonna to have one. Right? So God often tolerates in us certain actions that we should not do. And if he is busy, if he is actively tolerating things in us that we shouldn't do, he then tells us what we should do about that. Right? For example, God says, when you lie, this will be the results. Repent of all deceit and put lying away from you. Okay? He doesn't say, you'll, don't ever lie as a lost person, because a lost person doesn't have the strength to do that. He says, you will lie, you have lied, therefore now repent and put it away from you. Okay? And then if you should lie again, do it again. But that being said, the only reason that second time, third time, fifteenth time is possible is because Christ is making intercession next to the throne of God for us, and he, makes our, he becomes our intercession, according to John. All right, back on task for a second here. When these things unfold, she is found with an indecency and her husband writes her a certificate of divorce. When that happens, and she leaves his house, so those are the three dominoes, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. There's the fourth dominoes. All right, so four dominoes have fallen to get us to this point. She was found indecent by the man according to his testimony. She was divorced. She left his house. She married another man. So all of those things have fallen in order. Now verse 3, it says, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, boy, it's a, it's a messed up world when it can be so common that she was married, put out by divorce, goes on to another person, and he puts her out, maybe for the same reason. All right? Now he would have verified that she was divorced. No way he was going to marry her if she wasn't divorced. So he verified that she was divorced. And if she was divorced, she was divorced. she'd have the paper which said why she was divorced. Right? So he saw that, and if he puts her out for the same reason, that's pretty messed up. Maybe, like, intentional on his part. Like, oh, okay, well, I can, I can see past that. Oh, no, sorry, I can't see past that after all. Right? So if he then turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce, so now we've got five dominoes, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or... Substitute domino, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife. So in other words, this, she married a second guy, now the guy died off. All right? And we generally, in this world, we think, you know, if your husband dies, you're free to do whatever you want as far as remarrying, that kind of thing. But this is about that circumstance, as well as it's about if her second husband divorced her. So whether he divorced her or if he croaked, either way. Okay? Verse 4, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. Two things there. First of all, there's no going back. He's divorced her. She went and remarried. Her second husband died or was divorced, uh, divorced her because of an indecency that he found her or whatever, but she was divorced a second time. She's not allowed to go back with her first husband. Okay? And it said, the second part of it says, because she has been defiled. Now, defiled means unclean or useless. I submit to you in this case, it means that she's unclean or useless to her first husband or to God in her first marriage. 
Not in life in everything, necessarily. She's not permanently defiled or unclean, necessarily. But defiled, as we'll see in a second, specifically for her first husband's use, if you will. So since she has been defiled. Then it says, for that is an abomination before the Lord. If you take her back after she has been defiled for that purpose, it would be an abomination before the Lord. That word abomination is something like this. Blah! Blah! God would be sick to his stomach to think that a man who was married, who divorced his wife, she goes off and marries another man, he divorces her, she would go back to her first husband. Okay? Or, if her second husband died, which we would normally think, well, then he's fine. she's fine, right? She can go back to anybody she wants after that because he died. She stayed with him until death do us part. But that's marriage vows, not Bible. All right? And then he dies, she goes back to her first husband, God's about to throw up. This is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. In other words, while you're in the land doing this, don't do this. Don't exercise or be part of that abomination. I submit to you there are more ways in this to bring sin than just that abomination, but clearly that abomination would be a sin before God. And God should be pleased by what he's done, calling his people out into the promised land, giving them this land that they didn't plant, they get to harvest, they didn't build, they get to live in the houses, all that. He defended them in combat while they were going in. The Lord, your God, is giving you an inheritance, and while there, don't bring sin on the land. The place that God takes you, don't bring sin there. Last verse, 5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So, this is another state where a man marries a wife. It's his first year with his new wife. Maybe he's in the military. Maybe he's not. Maybe the king's calling up levies, whatever. Either way, he's free not to go out into the military for the first year. He is not to enact his duty, according to this. He can't be charged with any duty. So it could be a temple duty. It could be an army duty. It could be a city servant duty, whatever. He can't be charged with any duty that takes him away from his wife. You could say it this way. He's got to be able to sleep at home every night during the first year of his marriage. Okay? That's, this is Moses, God speaking through Moses to what it will be like. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And so for a year, he is to be committing his undivided attention, at least staying at home, so that they can build a marriage. Before I go into exposing uh, the text in three points, which I have written here on my paper, I want to share with you a story. Sherry and I went to Tennessee. While we were in Tennessee, it was over Christmas break. We got there on about the 26th of December, and we had the girls with us. And while we were there, uh, Malia developed an ear infection, and it got pretty severe. So we called back up here to Perrysburg to our doctor, and we said Molly developed an ear infection, and she had had a physical at the doctor maybe about four months before or something, and they looked that up, and the doctor said, okay, we'll call you in an antibiotic, just give her some Tylenol for the pain, we'll call, or whatever you need to do, Tylenol, ibuprofen overlapping if necessary, that kind of thing, and uh, go to the pharmacy and get an antibiotic. So we did. We went to the pharmacy. While we were at the pharmacy waiting in line, I noticed there was just gazillion drugs back there hanging up that people were coming to pick up. And we were waiting in line for the antibiotic. And as I am wont to do, 
whenever I'm able to do, I began a witnessing conversation with the lady who was giving us the antibiotic. She was wearing a cross around her neck. By the way, I submit to you that if you ever see anyone wearing a cross around their neck, that is an open invitation to witness. The very least, you can say, hey, I like your cross. Yeah, okay. Uh, if it's a crucifix, then you can, which means it has Jesus still on the cross, you can comment that we're grateful that Jesus is not still on the cross, but did go to the grave and resurrected on the third day and so on. You can begin that conversation. If it's an empty cross, you can say, it's funny, our faith is the only faith that uses an implement of torture and death for its main symbol, the cross. Which point they'll go, ah, yeah, that's true. And then you can begin to talk about what a Christian believes. You can go right into sharing the gospel pretty quickly. Uh, and you might even say something like, do you recall what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? And go straight to that. Talk about being born again. And if they are Catholic and not born again, they just might get saved if they believe what the Word says. And if they are uh, a Christian living outside the will of God, living on their own, but they just like to wear a cross because crosses are pretty, you'll have shared the gospel with somebody who desperately needs it. So the lady at the counter, back to the story, was wearing a cross. I commented on her cross. We began witnessing to her. And she had an amazing story, which I'm about to tell you. It's brief. She lived in Washington State. Jamie, you know Washington State. Uh, Jamie lived in Washington State for quite a while. Living in Washington State in a small town, I don't know where, she married a young man coming out of high school. She was 19 or 20 years old. He was a couple years older than she was. turned out that this young man was... Uh, into drinking alcohol, and whenever he drank, he was physically violent. They stayed together for about nine years with him being physically violent whenever he would drink too much. By that time, she had two children, one of which was seven and one of which was four. She just couldn't take it anymore when the violence began to turn toward the children and not only her. So the YWCA paid her way to relocate elsewhere. They'll do that. So she fled to the YWCA, they paid her way to relocate, and ultimately they settled her in Tullahoma, Tennessee, where she got her pharmacist license and became a pharmacist. She went off social media, she canceled her cell phone, she disconnected from her old life in every way so that her husband, who had beaten her every time he got drunk or often anyway, and had turned to beating her children fairly recently, would leave them alone. Nobody knew where she was. She was far away. Fast forward about five, six years, and her elder daughter is a teenager now, and there uh, she got involved with a church, went to a Bible study, went to VBS, went to something, and she got saved. And so that led this woman, mind you that I'm talking to at the pharmacy counter with a cross on her neck, so you can imagine where this is going, to get in church. She gave her life to Christ. Her second daughter gave her life to Christ. So there became a Christian family, a single mom, two kids serving in the church actively serving in the church there in Tullahoma. So she's going to church one day, and she runs into somebody who looks kind of familiar, and it turns out, now mind you, this is just really weird to even happen because we're 1,500 miles away, right? But this person used to live in Washington, recognized her from where she used to live, and says, um, aren't you so-and-so? Now mind you, she's not going by that name. So she says, no, no, that's not me. And she said, well, I don't mean any trouble. She, and they let it go. Well, over several weeks, she gets in conversation and she basically shares, they're in the same church, she shares the truth of what had happened, that she had relocated. And she asked them not to share anything on social media, nothing about back home or whatever. And she says, well, I hear what you're saying, the story, but isn't your, wasn't your husband so-and-so? 
And she said, and the person that she met said, yeah, that's my, that was my husband, but um, I, I don't want nothing to do with him. You know, uh, and so he proceeds to tell her, I can't remember if it was a man or a woman, but he proceeds to tell her that back home in Washington, her husband has accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, begun going to church, and has been going to church for several years, so where he goes to church by himself. And they personally witnessed this. Fast forward two years of very trepidatious discussion, cautiously reaching out, and like that, she finds out that this, this story is true. Her husband, living in Washington, now her daughter's now 16 years old, and hasn't known her father in eight years, right? And she finds out that her husband is faithfully serving in a church in Washington State. They, they, they elect to meet. They get together for coffee. And ultimately, he moves to Tullahoma. They get back together. They reconcile their marriage, raise their children the rest of the way. The 16-year-old daughter was a bit of a hurdle because she was very concerned, but she was very blessed also to finally know who her father was. And they reconciled their marriage after all of that. That is the grace and mercy of God. Hear it here in the text. The first thing I want you to see in this text then is that a good marriage is a thing to be built, protected, prioritized, and respected. And I emphasize this in my notes, it's all in caps, by all. All people everywhere should recognize the sanctity of marriage, how valuable it is. I use these words fairly selectively. I felt like God was speaking to my heart when I said, I said, built. Marriage takes work. You build it from the ground up. And you start a long time, a long, long time. Listen to me, married people. You start a long, long time before you ever say, I do. If you started building your marriage at the moment that you said, I do, you had already missed the boat. Like the kids who try to memorize all the Bible verses at 5 minutes to 11.30 on Sunday morning to make sure they get the prize, you go saying, I do, and try to fix yourself completely in marriage counseling. Sorry, that's not the way it works. Men will be men that they were created to be First in Christ's image, if they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but otherwise in the image of the world, if they have not, and when they get into their marriage, that's who they will still be. Why do you think there's the stereotyping and the joking about the woman is always fixing her man for the rest of her life? Because men are screwed up, and they will be for the rest of their lives, unless Jesus Christ has already taken care of some things. The bottom line is a marriage has to be built, and it starts by building a man and building a woman. If I was going to build a bridge, I would get the parts together first, wouldn't I? First you build a man, you build a woman, and then you put a man and a woman together and you build a couple or a marriage. A marriage is a thing to be built. It is a thing to be protected. Protected in that it will be challenged in every way, shape, or form. It's said to say that the three things most, most married couples fight about are sex, money, and communication. The third of which makes it almost impossible because they don't want to communicate because they're not good at it or every time they do it, it screws things up. So then they can't talk about sex or money. The bottom line is... It's a thing to be protected from outside influences and from literally everything except God. It's a thing to be prioritized, that it be put up over more important than any other choices. A man ought to love his wife more than he loves his kids. I'm sorry, but it's a fact. If you can't love yourself, you can't love somebody else. And loving your wife is loving yourself. A woman ought to love his, her husband more than she loves her kids for the same reason. If you can't love yourself, it's hard to love somebody else. 
And your man and woman become a couple, a marriage. And so it ought to be prioritized. In fact, man, if you pour into your wife, she will be a better mother for your children. If you pour into your husband, he will be a better father for your children. If you push your husband to be a better father for your children, you've already missed the boat. You're trying to put a bandage on a gaping wound. You're trying to stop a collapsed lung with a pixie stick. It's not going to work. you got to get back to where it was supposed to be. Built, protected, prioritized, and then respected. Give it the respect. Give the other person the respect that they deserve. If your husband or wife is choosing to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that alone makes them a child of God, and they, re- they deserve the respect of a child of God. But notice it's not built, protected, or prioritized and respected by him or by her. If it was only by him and not by her, it's doomed. If it was only by her and not by him, it's doomed. If it's by just them, it's doomed. Because it's by all. Just the same as it says a man is not supposed to be called out for his duty. We'll come back to that in a moment. A man is not supposed to be called out for by his duty in the first year of his marriage because all of society is supposed to be protecting the sanctity of marriage. Why is it a problem that we have redefined marriage in the United States of America? Not because we're against certain sinful behaviors, but because we are commanded and led by God and the kingdom of God to protect the sanctity of marriage at all times, that all men and all women and all married people and all unmarried people and all governors and all officers and all businessmen and all housewives, and all house husbands, and all teachers, and all doctors, and I could go on if you want to, but the bottom line, that we're all called to build, protect, prioritize, and respect marriage. Marriage is the foundation for a future society. I'm sorry to say, whether you like it or not, two men are not going to get together and foster a baby. It's just not going to happen. That happens in marriage. Except it also now happens outside marriage. And so we propagate that which happens outside marriage by more stuff that's going to happen outside godly marriage over and over again. We raise our children. I raised my child, my eldest child, who was born outside marriage, and she had her first child outside marriage. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. But the bottom line is the the future society of the United States of America and the entire world, and especially the kingdom of God, depends on, as if that marriage literally literally were the cradle for the future, depends on building, protecting, prioritizing, and respecting marriage by all. Marriage represents the union of Christ and his church. That's the main purpose for it. In Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, Paul is writing about marriage. I'm flipping there pretty quick. I'm moving along kind of excited. I apologize if, I, if you miss anything, but here we go. It's Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. And he basically says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Marriage, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, if I need to put it there, I will. Be prepared to die for your wife in your preferences, in your strength, in your weaknesses, in your life. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of word, of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all his glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You get it? This is all about an image that God is painting all the way back to Adam and Eve. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. This is all about God showing us that the cradle for society is a man and a woman in a proper union. Do you understand it? That everybody on the planet were wiped out. If there was one man and one woman, God could start a new society. We know this because he's already done it in Adam and Eve. Yes, he would have to renew our DNA, which is old and weak and tired comparatively. Yes, he would have to renew our bodies and our relationship with him would have to be good. Otherwise, in innocence or in righteousness as it was through Adam and Eve. Yes, that's true. But the bottom line is, he could do it. Because the cradle for the future of society, all society, is the marriage of men and women because it is a representation of the union of Christ and his church. Bear these things in mind and always seek in all that you do as commanded by God to preserve the sanctity of marriage. Second thing to see in these texts then is duty, honor, and dignity are required nutrients to nurture marriage. Okay, so we said that we were going to build, protect, prioritize, and respect marriage we said that we were going to pit ourselves to preserve the sanctity of marriage, recognizing it as the cradle of all future society and the representation of the relationship between Christ and his church. By the way, if there is no relationship between Christ and his church, we're all going to hell. That makes that pretty important, and it makes our marriage pretty important representing that relationship. Duty, honor, and dignity, then, are required nutrients to nurture marriage. So you want to nurture marriage, you want to see it be the right kind of thing? Duty, honor, and dignity are required. The beauty of this is that in a relationship with Christ, these things are self-supplied. The man recognizes his duty, holds himself in honor, and practices dignity because he is made in the image of God and is walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And he supplies duty, honor, and dignity. The woman, the same. And so when they come into marriage, they bring with them duty, honor, and dignity, enough to fertilize that marriage. Let's say, for example, they don't. That marriage will not succeed, certainly not in representing the image of Jesus Christ and his church, but possibly at all. Once lost, duty, honor, or dignity, once lost, might be regained through repentance. We might say, look, I have not behaved with honor. I lied, or I didn't hold up my responsibilities, or whatever. I didn't treat so-and-so with respect. I repent, and I turn to Jesus, and Jesus reinstitutes in me, makes me born again. So maybe I was married not a Christian, and now I'm turning to him for the first time, or I was married a Christian, but I realized I didn't honor what I said, and so I'm turning to him again. And Jesus then provides the duty, honor, and dignity in the life of a person, the nutrients that are necessary to nurture a marriage. But be careful about writing people off then, because you may look at a person in this present day or time, and they may not be worthy of your ongoing relationship. I know some folks, and folks, some folks I would call friends, and they will lie to me. 
And I could go, man, they lied to me again. I'm done with them. But be careful about writing them off, right? Remember what this is all about or where this all comes from? A man who had a wife, who found some immoral indecency in her and she couldn't be his wife anymore. She was clearly disqualified. Now she went off and became the wife of another man. And now he's gone by divorce or by death. And he's th this first man is thinking about taking her back. And he's saying he can't do it. There is a prohibition in taking her back. Why? Why would he even think about taking her back? He divorced her. Because we are too quick to cut people off in general. And he cut her off saying she had an immoral indecency that was no good. And now maybe he's thinking either A, he can tolerate it. It wasn't as bad as he thought. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence after all. Or he's saying it's clear that she's all fixed up now. She got past that thing. And I submit to you that if either one of those two things are true, if he is, if he can get past it now, or if he realizes that she, it's fixed in her now, either one, right? He wrote her the papers of divorce in the first place prematurely. He never should have done that. He cast her out, besmirched her honor, made her mistrusted in society, etc., for an immoral failing that she had, rather than tarrying with her to try to work through it or whatever. He didn't have duty, honor, and dignity in mind in his relationship with her. He may with the world. He may be a soldier in the army and shows great respect for command. He may be a, an, an officer in the city and shows great respect for the mayor. He may be a, a leather worker and does a great job and always charges a fair price. But in his marriage, he didn't have duty, honor, and dignity. He wrote her off thinking she was no good and could not possibly be qualified to be his wife. You know what he had? Well, if he later would possibly take her back, he at least had arrogance and short-sightedness, at the very least. He thought he was all that in a bag of chips and didn't deserve to be saddled with somebody who wasn't as good as him. So he wrote her off. And now he's looking at her down the road after she was clearly desired by somebody else. Now he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing that I had. You don't write somebody off lightly, ever. doesn't matter how bad they are, how much they offend you. Don't write them off lightly. Understand that God sees the end. And at the end, they may go to heaven, which means they would be a child of God. And God already sees that. God was at work in my life for 25 years before I became a Christian. In fact, I will submit to you that I could recount to you several miracles that God did in my life before I was saved. Answering stupid prayers that I wasn't praying to Him or didn't think I was. I was just praying to the sky or to the stars. Starlight, star bright for a star I see tonight. I wish I may. I wish I might have this wish I wish tonight. And then God does a miracle? Really? Before I was saved. Why? Because God knew when I was 25 years old that I would give my life to Christ and 26 become a child of God and ultimately become a servant of God. And with all my mess-ups and all my mistakes, God's never written me off. God didn't write you off with all your mess-ups and all your mistakes. So let's not be quick to write people off. Marriage requiring very various levels of tolerance. You've got to tolerate what they're doing while at the same time wanting better for them. That's what marriage is. It's not a we compromise, right? Well, I think we shouldn't lie. Well, I think we should only lie on Wednesdays and Fridays. Well, you're right. Can we just do Fridays? No, it's not like that. It's not compromise. It's tolerance. Well, I think we shouldn't lie. Well, I think we should only lie on Wednesdays and Fridays. Okay, I'm asking you, please, don't. I really believe this is what God wants us to do. No, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to continue to lie on Wednesdays and Fridays. Okay, well, just understand that on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm not going to trust you because you just told me you're going to lie on Wednesdays and Fridays. So there's going to be trust there, but I love you and I'll stick with you and I'm going to help. I'm going to, over time, we're going to try to work through this. 
Okay? It's not compromise. It's a varying levels of tolerance required at different times. You, and I'm going to say it this way because it's how I feel. Sometimes you've got to just put up with their crap. Why? For the sake of your duty and your honor and your dignity, you put up with their stuff so, because the marriage is nurtured in duty, honor, and dignity, not in chastisement or critical nature or talking bad about what they do or your pet peeves coming through all the time. Think, oh, I don't like it when you do that. That's not duty, it's not dignity, and it's not honor. And it will not nurture the marriage bed. We see God's example here in the text of how he comes back and he says, look, I'll tolerate your writing a certificate of divorce when you shouldn't have. I'll tolerate that. I mean, if you, it's going to happen, right? There's going to be women who are found in immorality and you're going to write them a certificate. You shouldn't, but you will. And when you do that, then they go off and marry somebody else. And I'll tolerate that, even though it's not appropriate, but that man loves that woman. You know, he's going to take care of her, whatever. It's a marriage, and if it becomes a godly marriage, great. But I'll tolerate that set of circumstances. But here's what I won't tolerate. I won't tolerate you writing them off as I have not done to you. I will not tolerate you writing them off and then later going, eh, you know, I didn't mean to write her off. She's actually kind of attractive, or I kind of do want her, or whatever. And since her new husband died, I can have her back now. No. God says, you can, I'll tolerate those Stupid little things to a point. But this is where I draw the line. When you take the marriage bed and you drag it through the mud so that the relationship of Jesus Christ and the church looks like two pigs wallowing in the mud making piglets. When you're destroying the image that I have created, the image of my son who would die for the church, that's enough. I'm done. No more. Once a person regains their duty, their honor, and their dignity, they may make matrimony possible or possible again. But there is a moment in time at which it is no longer possible to go back. Once instituted in another marriage, what did she have to do? She had to become one with that person. As Christ was one with the church, as the church is one with Christ, she had to go embody that image. That's what their new marriage had to be about. Now she's done that. So when she goes back, she's now setting an image of, I bonded with Christ. Now I'm, I've lost Christ. He died or he divorced me. So now I'm going to go back and bond with the person from before. So now what image do we have there? We have an image of the church bonded with Christ, now separating from Christ and going back to be with the world. No, that's an abomination to the Lord. We don't go back to who we were before, we don't go back to being with who we were before we chose to be with Christ. Once instituted in another marriage, that is to say, our marriage to Jesus, we never go back to the first again. Duty, honor, and dignity are required nutrients to nurture marriage, and they are self-supplied. Once lost, may be regained through Christ. Once regained, may make matrimony possible or possible again, but never when a person has been dismissed, goes there, and wants to come back, because that is an image of leaving Christ and going back to the world. The third point, then, is personal uncleanness due to God's commands applied is a very real thing. I've got to break that down for you because it is only distantly related to this passage of Scripture. It's very clearly there when you see it. Personal uncleanness. What is personal uncleanness? Is there anyone in this room 
that God has ever told them that they must do something or they must not do something that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell you you have to do it, but you know God has told you you have to do it. Does anybody have it? Can you think of one? Okay, so I'll use myself as an example. God, has to- God told me years ago to give up soda. That's not a sin to drink soda. Now, I know now that it was for my betterment, that God was doing something good for me at the time. I'd probably be dead if I hadn't done it. But I would never tell you don't drink soda. Personal uncleanness. Personal uncleanness is when you know what you cannot do or you know what you are supposed to do because of God's talking to you personally, but you'd have a hard time finding it written in here. If it's written in here, it's never by personal interpretation. If God says don't do it in this book, that's don't do it for all of us. And on that, we can begin to practice Matthew 18 accountability. We can say his word says it's a a sin. You're continuing to do it. I think it's a sin, but you say you're a Christian. Come on. Let's talk about that. Right? But if it's your personal preference, your personal idea, or God is maybe God is doing it in you to create dignity so you can stand up firm. Maybe you're a person that thinks you should work out every day, five days a week. God has told me I should work out every day, five days a week. I know that's something I'm supposed to do. And I, and I try really hard. Sometimes I fail at it, but I pretty much always get it. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're a person that says, well, you should go to bed by a reasonable time every night or get up early, right? And you know that's how your life works. And God has given authored that in you, all right? So if you quit that when God tells you what to do, for you, that would create personal uncleanness. Bless you. God has commanded you, and now you quit, therefore you are defiled, unclean for the service of the Lord. Personal uncleanness due to God's commands applied is a very real thing. How do I know this from this text? Has anybody already seen it? You already figured out how I know that there is a different standard for one person in this text than there is another? Does anybody see it? The woman who cannot go back and marry her first husband, can she marry again? She can. Right? It doesn't say she can never be married again, especially if her husband died, right? We know that. Her husband died, her second husband, after her first husband divorced her, her second husband died, what, she, what can she not do? She cannot go back with her first husband because that would be an abomination to the Lord. But she could marry somebody else, right? Her first husband cannot take her back because that would be an abomination to the Lord. But all other qualified candidates are open to marry her if they choose. You see the difference? God is saying to that man who dismissed her and now would potentially take her back, you can't do that. It's different for him than it is for anybody else. And if he takes it, not only is it going to make him kind of feel bad, but it's an abomination to the Lord. And it will bring sin upon the land. Right? I submit to you, if God says to me that I have to do something and I choose not to do it, and you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but if God says something to me very clearly and I choose not to do it, then you're all going to suffer for it. Every church member in this room, everyone who has latched themselves to me as a brother or sister in Christ recognizes my profession of Jesus Christ. If I choose not to do what it is that God has told me to do, you're all going to suffer for it. Because that is an abomination to the Lord. God clearly told me what to do. I'm intentionally choosing not to do it. That's an abomination to the Lord. Which, according to what it says here, brings sin upon the land to which I am called. What land to, am I called to? Just, just 2103 Union Street, right? It's just going to bring there. Well, by the way, if it just brought it there, that's going to affect my wife. It's going to affect my current daughter, my current son living in my house, 
And everybody that was raised there, so there goes Alicia, there goes Amalia, there goes Aaron, right? So now they're all affected, and, all, and their spouses are all affected. See how this goes? So even if we didn't count that limitation of, if we only said it's only the house in which I raised kids, right? Everybody would be affected. And by the way, once they're all affected, they're all going to affect all of you. That's how it goes. It's going to spread from person to person. So if you're here today and you're not doing what it is that God has called you to do, you've not been serving in the capacity that God has led you to, you're affecting your spouse, your kids if you have them, or anybody else that stays in your house, and not only that, but everybody that's in the church, which means when you choose not to do what it is that you were told to do, you're affecting me. I'm suffering because your church didn't do what you were called to do. And that's the way it goes. And there's no duty, honor, and dignity in that. Right? But there's an exception given here, isn't there? For the first year of the marriage. So the first year of the marriage, because why? Because the marriage represents the marriage of Christ and the church, which is the chief and foremost point. It is the thing. Because we started out saying we must build, protect, prioritize, and respect that marriage because it represents the marriage relationship of Jesus Christ. Duty, honor, and dignity are required as nutrients to nurture that marriage. So we should try to have those things and build, protect, and prioritize, and respect those things. But personal uncleanness due to God's commands applied is a very real thing. You gotta do what you gotta do in the Lord, and I gotta do what I gotta do in the Lord. And it's not always the same. We, you and I might go to a restaurant together, and the server might come to the table, and God might say to you, hey, witness to the server. And God might not say to me, witness to the server. And then another day we might go, and God might say to me, witness to the server. Now we all know Acts 1-8. We all know Matthew, the Great Commission. Right? So we're all called to witness, all called to talk about Jesus, all the time supposed to be. But on that particular day, God says to me, do it, and I don't do it, you're going to suffer for it. Or he says, you do it, and you don't do it, I'm going to suffer for it. We ought not to go out to eat if we're not ready for God to say, talk to somebody about Jesus. Because it very well could happen. And personal uncleanness due to God's commands applied is a very real thing. Now I want you to be real critical of yourself for a second, not to accuse yourself. That's, that's the job of the enemy. But I want you to think about yourself and how many things maybe God is telling you to do that you're not doing. And I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself, if that's true, am I practicing my duty? Is my duty to God and am I doing the things that God has called me to do? And if you're not, then you are failing to provide the nutrients that are necessary for your marriage or for the marriage of anybody that you know. Your parents, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, mine. I ask you to ask yourself for a moment about honor. Have you been honorable? Do you do what you say you're going to do when you said you were going to do it? Are you walking around thinking about what God would want you to do or what needs to be done, even if God is not right there at that moment in time telling you what you're supposed to do? Or, for example, if it's your parent, are you doing what your parents would want you to do? Remember that the obey and honor your parents command was given to adults, not only children. So as an adult, are you doing what your parents would want you to do? Now, if it's sin that they would want you to do, then you can dismiss that. But if it's not, are you doing what they would want you to do? 
because that's honoring them. If you're not practicing honor, how will you build, protect, prioritize, and respect the marriage bed? I don't think I need to go on. The bottom line is, you have a responsibility between you and God to figure out what you're supposed to do, and I submit to you that you shouldn't write God off. Oh, did you think I was only talking about people? I submit to you that God was saying we should not write him off. The very one who went to the cross and died for us should never be written off. He loves you. Will you find flaw in God? Has God allowed something to happen in your life that you didn't like? Now that you've known God for a while, does he ask hard things of you? Have you gone through things that you might just feel like saying, Oh my God! Like the unsaved YouTubers do a million times in every video. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Oh, but, you know, the Ten Commandments, really, when it says taking the Lord's name in vain, you know, that's kind of old or something. There's some excuse why we can go ahead and do that. No, don't write God off. His commands are still His commands. And your personal uncleanness due to God's commands is a very real thing. So much so that if you are thus defiled, there are going to be places that you cannot go back to. Callings that you cannot now fulfill. Duties that you cannot now do because you have defiled yourself. The great blessing is that you can become undefiled if you'll go to the Lord your God, repent, turn to him, and let him do the work. We're in our conclusion now. Let me say to you that in this marriage between the church and Christ, God tolerates an awful lot from us. God hates divorce. That's what Malachi 2.16 says. Yet it's all too common in the world. He, even Jesus himself speaking in Matthew 5.31-32 says the only reason for divorce is immorality, sexual immorality on behalf of the other person. And they're like, but Moses said you can write a letter of divorce if you don't like what she's like. And he says, that's not what it said. And now you know that's not what it said. The only cause for divorce is sexual morality in the other person. By the way, he did not then say, if the person, other person is adulterous or sexually immoral, you should divorce them. That's not what it said. You can divorce them. They shouldn't, and they will, dra they will drain all the duty, honor, and dignity out of the marriage. They have not built it, protected it, prioritized it, or respected it. Clearly, if they have been adulterous, they have missed every command, and they have personal uncleanness. They may even be defiled to the point that you may not be able to help them get beyond what they've done. And if God authorizes it, then we can do it, and there no great harm will be done. You can divorce them for immorality. But oh... Thank you, God, that he has not divorced us for our immorality, sexual or otherwise. Oh, thank you, God, that he has tolerated us all through. After having clearly given us the commands to build, protect, prioritize, and respect marriage. To be a person of duty, honor, honor and dignity in all things. Because if the cradle is marriage, and it is required for the future of mankind's society on earth, then I submit to you in heaven. 
than by our not holding the sanctity of marriage, by our not nurturing it in duty, honor, and dignity, by our not building it, protecting it, by our not doing these things that we are called to, we are literally bringing about the end of mankind and the kingdom of God. Help us. Help us remember. You say, well, I'm not married. How does this apply to me? If you can't hear it, then you're either distracted or a little too full of yourself. Because you have the same job, duty, honor, and dignity, because they are the nutrients to nurture marriage. You're just build, protect, prioritize, and respect marriage, even if you're not married, even if you're a kid. We all have the same duty. God help us. Because we're living in a day when the world at large has divorced God. And in divorcing God, they have decided that marriage, godly marriage, is not all that important. But it's the cradle for the future. And if we go the way that society is going on, and if we would join them and go that way, there will be no future. If you're here today and the Lord has spoken to you somehow during this message and you said, you know what, you've not been holding up your due. You've not been honorable. You've not been respectful. You've been damaged to the relationship between Christ and his church. Or maybe you said, you've not protected marriage. You've not respected marriage. You've not built yourself up to be married if you're not married yet or as a married person. You just say, well, I'm good now. She can take care of that or he can take care of that. I don't have to do anything to get better. That's not true. You're not building your marriage. Maybe your efforts in working your job and paying your bills instead of building your marriage. And if that's you, you need to repent and turn to the Lord. And let God call you forward into the kingdom of God. And your example of a godly marriage, your example of supporting marriage as an unmarried person or as a young person, will make possible the success of God in someone's marriage and the future's back on the table. We mustn't divorce God. We must be grateful that God tolerates us up and down every day. I'm just praying to come forward this time and lead our closing hymn. Um, and... If you're responding in some way, then you come and respond publicly or raise your hand right where you are and I'll let you um, speak. God help us. We'll stand as we sing this hymn and this will be the closing hymn of our service today. Pastor Daniel Stevenson, I want to thank you for dialing in today to New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. 
You've been listening to his people in East Toledo reaching new heights in Jesus, and I want you to know that this podcast is reaching around the world. Please feel free to share the podcast with anyone or everyone who might listen and also reach new heights in Jesus. We're being aired right now in roughly 50 countries, and it's expanding, expanding, expanding. It's all for God's glory. It doesn't matter where people are who want to listen to this. They can get it through the Life for Toledo app that's available in the App Store for mobile uh, Android and iOS, and it's on the front page, but they can also get it through rss.com. They can get the link by texting podcast to 419-419-0095. Click on the link and they're there. So again, thank you for joining us today. If you feel that you are in need or God is calling you to donate to the ministry, you can do so by texting G-I-V-E, that's the word give, to 419-419-0095. And that number then will allow you to set up your debit or credit card to give as you see fit. And I hope that you do that as the Lord leads and only as the Lord leads. You should be plugged into your local church and tithing. Um, if you feel that God is calling you to New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo, then you can check us out online at churchtoledo.com. There is a page there about what does it take to be a member of New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. You may live out of state even and God might be calling you here. You may be unable to attend church anywhere because you have health concerns or there may be any number of other reasons why you cannot really commit to a membership in New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo, but you know God is calling you to do that. And if that's so, check out that page because there is a thing there called non-resident member and the requirements, what you cannot meet to be a full-fledged member of New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo, you may still be able to be a non-resident member until you find a church home near you or until God frees you up and helps you cross those barriers so you can serve at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. If you'd like to know more information at all about the ministry, there's so many different ways. You can get it in our Life for Toledo app in the App Store or on our church website at newheightsfellowshipchurch.org or churchtoledo.com. God bless you today.